Section 12 of The Good Dog Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne B. Sweet 13. Scally, The Story of a Perfect Gentleman, Part 3, by Ian Hay. Division 6. So the curate went away but not to London. He was sent instead to a great manufacturing town in the north, where the work was equally hard, and where Anglican and Roman and Salvationist fought grimly side by side against the powers of drink and disease and crime. During these days, which ultimately rolled into years, the curate lost his boyish freshness and his unfortunate tendency to put on flesh. He grew thin and lathy, and though his smile was as ready and as majestic as ever, he seldom laughed. He never failed, however, to write a cheerful letter to Aline every Monday morning. He was getting a hundred and twenty pounds a year now, so his chances of becoming a millionaire had increased by twenty percent. Meantime, his two confederates, Escalabar and Aline, continued to reside at Munchmore Ham. Aline was still the recognized beauty of the district, but she spread her net less promiscuously than of yore. Girlfriend she always had in plenty, but it was noticed that she avoided intimacy with all eligible males of over twenty and under forty-five years of age. No one knew the reason for this, except Escalabar. Aline used to read Gerald's letters aloud to him every Tuesday morning. Sometimes the letter contained a friendly message to Escalabar himself. In acknowledgment of this courtesy, Escalabar always sent his love to the curate. Aline wrote every Friday, and he and Aline walked together, rain or shine, on Friday afternoon to post the letter in the next village. Much more Ham's post office was too small to remain oblivious to such a regular correspondence. The curate was seen no more in his old parish. Railroad journeys are costly things, and curate's holidays rare. Besides, he had no overt excuse for coming. And so life went on for five years. The curate and Aline may have met during that period, for Aline sometimes went away visiting. As Escalabar was not privileged to accompany her on these occasions, he had no means of checking her movements. But the chances are that she never saw the curate, or I think she would have told Escalabar about it. We simply have to tell someone. Then, quite suddenly, came a tremendous change in Escalabar's life. Aline's brother-in-law, he was Escalabar's master no longer. For Escalabar had been transferred to Aline by deed of gift, at her own request, on her first birthday after the curate's departure, fell ill. There was an operation and a crisis, and a deal of unhappiness and much more ham. Then came convalescence, followed by directions for a sea voyage of six months. It was arranged that the house should be shut up and the children sent to their grandmother at Bath. That settles everything and everybody, said the gaunt man on the sofa, except you, Aline. What about you? 
what about scally inquired aline her brother-in-law apologetically admitted that he had forgotten scally not quite myself at present he mentioned in extenuation i'm going to aunt phoebe announced aline you are never going to introduce scally into aunt phoebe's establishment cried aline's sister no said aline i am not she rubbed escalibur's matted head affectionately but i have arranged for the dear man's future he is going to visit friends in the north aren't you darling escalibur to whom this arrangement had been privately communicated some days before wagged his tail and endeavoured to look as intelligent and knowing as possible he was not going to put his beloved mistress to shame by admitting to her relatives that he had not the faintest idea what she was talking about however he was soon to understand the next day aline took him up to london by train this in itself was a tremendous adventure though alarming at first he travelled in the guard's van it having been found quite impossible to get him into an ordinary compartment or rather to get anyone else into the compartment after he lay down on the floor so he travelled with the guard chained to the vacuum brake and shared that kindly official's dinner when they reached the terminus there was much bustle and confusion the door of the van was thrown open and porters dragged out the luggage and submitted samples thereof to overheated passengers who invariably failed to recognize their own property and claim someone else's finally when the luggage was all cleared out the guard took off his scalabar's chain and facetiously invited him to alight for london town escalabar lumbering delicately across the ribbed floor of the van arrived at the open doorway outside on the platform he espied aline beside her stood a tall figure in black with one tremendous roar of rapturous recognition escalibur leaped straight out of the van and launched himself fairly and squarely at the curate's chest luckily the curate saw him coming he knows you all right said aline with satisfaction he appears too replied the curate afraid i don't dance the tango scally old man but thanks for the invitation all the same escalibur spent the rest of the day in london where it must be admitted he caused a genuine sensation no mean feat in such a blasé place in bond street the traffic had to be held up both ways by benevolent policemen because escalibur feeling pleasantly tired lay down to rest when evening came they all dined together in a cheap little restaurant in soho and were very gay with the gaiety of people who were whistling to keep their courage up after dinner aline said good-bye first to escalibar and then to the curate she was much more demonstrative toward the former than toward the latter which is the way of woman then the curate put aline into a taxi and having with the aid of the commissionaire extracted a scalabar from underneath he had gone there under some confused impression that it was the guard's van again said good-bye for the last time and aline smiling bravely was whirled away out of sight as the taxi turned a distant corner and disappeared from view it suddenly occurred to escalabar that he had been left behind 
Accordingly, he set off in pursuit. The curate finally ran him to earth in Buckingham Palace Road, which is a long chase from Soho, where he was sitting on the pavement, to the grave inconvenience of the inhabitants of Plimico, and refusing to be comforted. It took his new master the better part of an hour to get him to Uston Road, where it was discovered they had missed the night mail to the north. Accordingly, they walked to a rival station and took another train. In all this, Escalabar was the instrument of destiny, as you shall hear. Division 7 The coroner's jury was inclined at the time to blame the single men, but the Board of Trade Inquiry established the fact that the accident was due to the engine driver's neglect to keep a proper lookout. However, as the driver was dead and his firemen with him, the law very leniently took no further action in the matter. About three o'clock in the morning, as the train was crossing a bleak Yorkshire moor seven miles from Tetley Junction, the curate suddenly left the seat on which he lay stretched, dreaming of a lean, and flew across the compartment on to the recumbent form of a stout commercial traveller. Then he rebounded to the floor and woke up unhurt. "'Tis an accident, lad,' gasped the commercial traveller as he got his wind. "'So it seems,' said the curate. "'Hold tight, she's rockin'. The commercial traveller, who was mechanically groping under the seat for his boots, commercial travellers always remove their boots in third-class railroad compartments when on night journeys, followed the curate's advice and braced himself with his feet against the opposite seat for the coming belervousment. After the first shock, the train had gathered way again. The light engine into which it had charged had been thrown clear off the track, but only for a moment. Suddenly, the reeling engine of the express left the rails and staggered drunkenly along the ballast. A moment later it turned over, taking the guard's van and the first four coaches with it, and the whole train came to a standstill. It was a corridor train, and unfortunately for Gerald Gilmore and the commercial traveller, their coach fell over, corridor side downward. There was no door on the other side of the compartment, only three windows, crossed by a stout brass bar. The windows had suddenly become skylights. They fought their way out at last. Once he got the window open, the curate experienced little difficulty in getting through, but the commercial traveller was corpulent and tenacious of his boots, which he held persistently in one hand while Gerald tugged at the other. Still he was hauled up at last, and the two slid down with the perpendicular roof of the coach to the permanent way. That's done anyway, panted the drummer, and sitting down he began to put on his boots. There's plenty more to do, said the curate grimly, pulling off his coat. The front of the train is on fire. Come! He turned and ran. Almost at his first step, he cannoned into a heavy body in rapid motion. It was a scalabar. That you, old friend? observed the curate. I was on my way to see about you. Now that you are out, you may as well come and bear a hand. 
the pair sprinted along the line toward the blazing coaches. It was dawn, gray, weeping, and cheerless, on Teetley Moor. Another engine had come up from behind to take what was left of the train back to the junction. Seven coaches, including the lordly sleeping saloon, stood intact. Four, with the engine and tender, lay where they had fallen, a mass of charred wood and twisted metal. A motor car belonging to a doctor stood in the roadway a hundred yards off, and its owner, with a brother of the craft who had been a passenger on the train, was attending to the injured. There were fourteen of these altogether, mostly suffering from burns. These were made as comfortable as possible, in sleeping berths their owners had vacated. "'Take your seats, please,' said the surviving guard in a subdued voice. He spoke at the direction of a big man in a heavy overcoat, who appeared to have taken charge of the salvage operations. The passengers clambered up into the train. Only one hesitated. He was a long, lean young man, black from head to foot with suit and oil. His left arm was badly burned, and seeing a doctor disengaged at last, he came forward to have it dressed. The big man in the heavy overcoat approached him. "'My name is Caversham,' he said. "'I happen to be a director of the company. "'If you will give me your name and address, "'I will see to it that your services tonight are suitably recognized. "'The way you got those two children out of the first coach was splendid, "'if I may be allowed to say so. "'We did not even know they were there.' "'The young man's teeth suddenly flashed out into a white smile "'against the blackness of his face.' "'Neither did I, sir,' he said. "'Let me introduce you to the responsible party.' He whistled. Out of the gray dawn loomed an eerie monster, badly singed, wagging its tail. "'Scally, old man,' said the curate, "'this gentleman wants to present you with an illuminated address. Thank him prettily.' Then to the doctor, "'I'm ever so much obliged to you. It's quite comfortable now.' He began stiffly to pull on his coat and waistcoat. Lord Caversham, lending a hand, noted the waistcoat and said quickly, Will you travel in my compartment? I should like to have a word with you if I may. I think I had better go and have a look at those poor folks in the sleeper first, replied the curate. They may require my services professionally. At the junction, then, perhaps, suggested Lord Caversham. At the junction, however, the curate found a special waiting to proceed north by a loop line, and being in no mind to receive compliments or waste his substance on a hotel, he departed forthwith, taking his charred confederate, Escalibar, with him. Division 8 Fortune, once she takes a fancy to you, is not readily shaken off. However, as most successful men are always trying to forget. A fortnight later, Lord Caversham, leaving his hotel in a great northern town, encountered an acquaintance he had no difficulty whatever in recognizing. It was a scalbar, jammed fast between two stationary tram cars. He had not yet shaken down to town life, submitting to a painful but effective process of extraction 
at the hands of a posse of policemen and tram conductors shrilly directed by a small but commending girl of the lodging-house drudge variety when this enterprise had been brought to a successful conclusion and the congested traffic moved on by the overheated policemen lord caversham crossed the street and tapped the damsel on the shoulder can you kindly inform me where the owner of that dog may be found he inquired politely yes seventy one pilgrim street but he won't sell him should i be likely to find him at home if i called now yes been in bed since the accident got a nasty arm perhaps you would not mind accompanying me back to pilgrim street in my car after that mary ellen's mind became an incoherent blur a stately limousine glided up mary ellen was handed in by a footman and a scalabar was stuffed in after her in installments the grand gentleman entered by the opposite door and sat down beside her but mary ellen was much too dazed to converse with him the arrival of the equipage in pilgrim street was the greatest moment of mary ellen's life meantime upstairs in the first floor front the curate lying in his uncomfortable flock bed was saying if you really mean it sir i do mean it if those two children had been burned to death unnoticed i should never have forgiven myself and the public would never have forgiven the company well sir since you say that you well you could do me a service could you possibly use your influence to get me a billet i'm not asking for an incumbency any old curacy will do a billet i could marry on he flushed scarlet i we have been waiting a long time now there was a long silence and the curate wondered whether he had been too mercenary in his request then lord caversham asked what are you getting at present a hundred and twenty a year this was about two-thirds of the salary lord caversham paid his chauffeur he asked another question in his curious abrupt staccato manner how much do you want we could make both ends meet on two hundred but another fifty would enable me to make her a lot more comfortable said the curate wistfully the great man surveyed him silently wondering too if the curate had known presently he asked afraid of hard work no work is hard to a man with a wife and a house of his own replied the curate with simple fervor lord caversham smiled grimly he had more homes of his own than he could conveniently live in and he had been married three times but even he found work hard now and then i wonder he said well good afternoon i should like to be introduced to your fiance some day division nine a tramp opened the rectory gate and shambled up the neat gravel walk toward the house taking a shortcut through the shrubbery he emerged suddenly on a little lawn on the lawn a lady was sitting in a basket chair beside a perambulator the occupant of which was slumbering peacefully a small but intensely capable nursemaid prone on the grass in a curvilinear attitude was acting as tunnel to a young gentleman of three who was impersonating a locomotive the tramp approached the group 
and asked huskily for alms. He was a burly and unpleasant specimen of his class, a class all too numerous on the outskirts of the great industrial palace of Smeltingborough. The lady in the basket chair looked up. The rector is out, she said. If you go into the town, you will find him at the church hall, and he will investigate your case. Oh, the rector is out, is he? repeated the tramp in tones of distinct satisfaction. Yes, said Aline. The tramp advanced another pace. Give us half a crown, he said. I haven't had a bite of food since yesterday, lady, nor a drink neither, he added humorously. Please go away, said the lady. You know where to find the rector. The tramp smiled unpleasantly, but made no attempt to move. You refuse to go away, the lady said. I'll go for half a crown, replied the tramp, with the gracious air of one anxious to oblige a lady. Watch baby for a moment, Mary Ellen, said Aline. She rose and disappeared into the house, followed by the gratified smile of the tramp. He was a reasonable man and knew that ladies did not wear pockets. Dirty weather, he remarked affably. Mary Ellen, keeping one hand on the shoulder of Master Gerald Carisham Gilmore and the other on the edge of the baby's permulator, merely chuckled sardonically. The next moment there were footsteps round the corner of the house, and Aline reappeared. She was clinging with both hands to the collar of an enormous dog. Its tongue lolled from its great jaws. Its tail waved menacingly from side to side. Its great limbs were bent as though for a spring. Its eyes were half-closed as though to focus the exact distance. Run, called Aline to the tramp. I can't hold him in much longer. This was true enough, except that when Aline said in, she meant up. But the tramp did not linger to discuss grammar. There was a scurry of feet, the gate banged, and he was gone. With a sigh of relief, Aline let go of Escalibur's collar. Escalibur promptly collapsed on the grass and went to sleep again. End of section 12